Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Mike Brindon, and I'm an editorial director here at IHI. I'll be filling in for Madge Kaplan on today's show. Pick up any news source, and you'll see what, that we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic. Statistics continue to climb in the wrong direction, and communities all across the United States are trying to figure out how to cope. The news isn't good, and it gets more complicated when the discussion includes pregnant women who are dealing with addiction. Especially in hard-hit communities, there's been a sharp rise in babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. For those babies, the first challenge in life must then be drug withdrawal. The reality can be painful to see. But there are bright spots, spots coming into focus, too. There are innovative programs that are helping pregnant women manage their addictions and improve birth outcomes. And on today's WIHI, Nurturing Trust, Addiction and Maternal and Newborn Health, we're going to learn more about three of these programs, each from a different area within the U.S. For those who are new to WIHI, welcome. This is the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's online audio talk show, which we offer live, biweekly, and after the show via IHI.org and on iTunes. On this program, we lean into cutting-edge innovation and bold ideas that are improving health and healthcare around the world. This week's show, of course, falls right into that category. With the opioid crisis, there's the particular urgency to focus on necessary and immediate interventions, and there's also learning that can lead to more effective strategies to improve maternal and newborn health overall. We're excited to have a fantastic panel of guests with us today to explore these topics. But before we get to the introduction of that panel, here's IHI's John Gothier to remind all the WIHI listeners today about how to make the most of your time with us. All right, Mike, thanks. Uh, just a few items today to point out to everybody so everybody can make the most of today's program. On the right of your screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge or, excuse me, Mike opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. Or if you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. T tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mike. Thank you, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with our followers. Now, let's meet our expert panelists. First, we're going to talk to our panelists on the phone. First, we have Helen Balanca. She's an associate medical director at HealthShare of Oregon, the state's largest coordinated care organization. Dr. Balanca's work focuses on reproductive health, maternity care, and early childhood initiatives, as well as metric development and payment reform. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thanks, Mike. Next, we have Nancy Goler. She's a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist. She's been the regional medical director for Kaiser Permanente's Early Start program since 2003. In 2008, she was selected by health leaders as one of the top 20 people making a difference in healthcare, based on her work as the lead investigator of a research study about the Early Start program in the Journal of Perinatology. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here. Great. Next up, we have Daisy Goodman. Daisy is a certified nurse midwife in clinical practice at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and an instructor in obstetrics and gynecology at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Her area of clinical and research interest is focused on improving access to care for pregnant women with opioid use disorders and on the intersection of trauma and substance use in women's lives. Welcome to the show, Daisy. Daisy, we have you. 
Yep. All Thanks. right, welcome. So glad to be here. <laughs> Did you hear me? <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks, Daisy. And here, and here in the office, we're fortunate to have two members of IHI's innovation team. First, Jeff Rackover, a research associate at IHI, focusing on innovative payment and delivery models for maternal and infant health, as well as the implications of payers and providers applying quality improvement methods to achieve the IHI triple aim. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. It's a real honor. Last, but certainly not least, Marion Johnson is a director of IHI and is a lead on the innovation team for which he researches, tests, and disseminates content to further IHI's strategic priorities. She also leads research and policy initiatives related to several Medicaid subpopulations, including pregnant women and Medicaid Medicare dual eligible. Marion, welcome. Thanks, Mike. Wonderful. What a great group we have. Thanks to all, thanks to everybody for joining today. And, and with that, let's get started because we have a lot to go over. First question, I'm going to turn to Marion. Marion, I'm betting no one is surprised that we're talking about another aspect of the opioid crisis today on WIHI, a topic we covered more broadly on April 21st. Many in the improvement community have, in, in partnership with others in their communities, a laser-like focus on, on this issue. IHI's innovation team found its way to the particular challenges facing pregnant women with addiction by looking at effective strategies to improve maternal health and the Medicaid population. So could you describe this journey and kind of help frame our, our discussion today? Sure, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just give a bit of context as to how IHI came to explore this topic and how we learned about the models that we'll hear about today. Great. So IHI has spent um, many years working in the maternal and infant health space. We've done a lot of work reducing maternal and under five mortality in Ghana, Malawi, South Africa, India, and then we have done a lot of work recently reducing C-sections in Brazil, where the rate of C-sections actually hovers around 80-85%, if you can believe it. And then we also, for um, 11 years, had a perinatal improvement community focused on sort of keeping normal normal, as we like to call it here at IHI, so reducing elective inductions before 39 weeks, uh, implementing safety bundles for safe childbirth, really important topics, but sort of focused on that labor and delivery window, sort of that three-day period in the hospital. And then more recently, providing some technical assistance for the CMS Strong Start program. But in the past year, we decided that it was time for IHI to shift from a labor and delivery model to a population approach, really thinking about looking for the triple aim models of caring for pregnant women, preconception, during pregnancy, and then even postpartum and interconception. So our, that's how the IHI innovation team got involved uh, over the past year to look, to, to scan the field for best practices, evidence-based best practices for caring for a pregnant population across a community. And so since we needed to, um, scope our topic a little bit, especially with our innovation 90-day cycles, we decided to focus on preterm birth, especially since it's on the causal pathway for many other poor birth outcomes, and then also focus our efforts on the Medicaid population, not because Medicaid is in and of itself a determinant of poor birth outcomes, but those poor birth outcomes do tend to be more prevalent in the Medicaid population. Hmm. And then also on a positive note, Medicaid is uh, at a time of... um, a pivot in the United States, and there are many innovative Medicaid payment models emerging. Sort of one of the most, uh, the newest being Medicaid ACO. So, in fact, for our um, exploration, we first focused on those states implementing Medicaid ACOs, which are Oregon, Minnesota, Maine, Vermont, and New Jersey. But then we we expanded out from those states as well, as you'll see. Um, two of our panelists today are not from Medicaid ACO states and still have very innovative models that they're that they're focused on. Right, right. And so then for the methods for our innovation work, we uh, did an evidence scan, and it's just important to note that when it comes to studying community approaches and the social determinants of poor birth outcomes, we really found that we can't wait for the peer-reviewed literature to catch up. There is some evidence on social determinants and its impacts on poor birth outcomes, especially for um, smoking cessation and you know substance use, as we'll hear about in a little bit. But for many of them, we sort of need to take a more implementation-based um, model to be testing some of these approaches before the peer-reviewed evidence and gold standards of randomized controlled trials can be um, can be found. So as, as you see our methods here, we interviewed many different people. We convened an expert design meeting in September. We've been testing and validating our theory. And we're hoping to prototype test uh, the interventions that one of the interventions that you'll hear about today and then several others as well in a community in an integrated way sometime over the next six to nine months. 
And then there are too many promising practices to note here. We're going to focus on the ones um, related to substance use and perinatal care integrated models. But just suffice it to say, we found very many promising practices across the country, across many, many different states, 20 or 30 states. And uh, for anyone who's interested in listening in um, and learning more about those, we'd be happy to share our findings. So from the, in a summary, from all of the best practice evidence and the best practice models that we found, we could sort of categorize the interventions as falling into four main pillars. Um, essentially a maternity medical home model and takes many different forms in many states, peer support models including group prenatal care, integrated models of substance use treatment and perinatal care, which you'll hear about today, and then shared decision making around spectrum of pregnancy intention. So as I said, the next steps will be prototype testing, and we can't wait for you to hear more from our panelists. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much, Mary, for that fantastic framing. Lots of good work going on here uh, around the topic. Uh, next, let's, let's turn to Nancy. Nancy, many people listening today might be surprised to learn that Early Start, the program you're going to tell us about at, at Kaiser Permanente, has been around for more than two decades. I believe it started in, in 1990. Uh, can you tell us a, a bit about the program and, and then also uh, as a second part to that question, since it's been around for more than 25 years, does, does KP have a, a bit of a leg up, if you will, under the current opioid crisis circumstances? Well, Mike, thank you so much again, uh, and all of uh, WITI for inviting me to join this incredibly talented panel of individuals and to be able to speak with all of the folks who've called in about um, early start and about this very uh, pressing problem, which you would think 25 years later we would have totally under control, and we certainly do not with the large opioid uh, epidemic we're having. There is no doubt that we have a bit of a leg up, even though we are also seeing opioid dependence and we're seeing an increase in our uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome uh, in our hospitals, we are still much less than the national averages or the averages throughout California. So our program is continuing to work uh, to decrease the morbidity and mortality from alcohol, drug, and other uh, uh, and cigarette use. Early Start itself is an award-winning program with peer-reviewed journal published outcomes that not only show a decrease in morbidity and mortality for babies and mothers alike, it also demonstrates, and this has been published, that the program itself is cost beneficial. That is that Kaiser Permanente actually saves money by paying for the program because the cost for an ill baby at birth, and especially for NICU admissions, neonatal absence syndrome, et cetera, are significantly higher relative to the cost of a social worker or any toxicology lab results. So I'm going to share some slides later that show you this, and our published papers are listed there for the audience to be able to get. Um, the program itself was originated by a nurse practitioner who was tired of seeing babies born on drugs in our hospital in the 80s. It was a different drug epidemic then, but same problem. And the concept of the program has remained very stable. It's about being in a non-punitive environment and decreasing all barriers to care by integrating the program directly into routine prenatal care. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, I know the slide just showed, but I just want to be sure you saw the, the vastness of our size. We're 50,000 square miles of driving. We have clinics with two or three or four providers and some with 20 to 30 providers, physicians, midwives, nurse practitioners. We insure almost 4 million people delivering close to 40,000 babies which makes us very, very large, as large as some large counties and cities uh, that provide care. And one of the, the unique features that we have is that we are an integrated model. So our payment system is integrated into our healthcare delivery system. And that is one of the challenges, I think, across the nation right now, is that the incentives for payment uh, for care are not aligned with where the care needs to be given. So there's uh, a lot of payment going to our hospitals, some of which are for profit, around baby admissions, where there is not a lot of money going into the ambulatory setting, and we need to re-look uh, and realign those incentives. Um, sorry, one sec. Um, so the, the core principles of Early Start have stayed the same, um, and the number one thing is that we universally screen all pregnant women. Early Start is considered part of your routine prenatal care, so everyone who enters gets a screening questionnaire. And we also do urine toxicology. Now, like any prenatal lab, they can decline that, but we consider it part of our standard care, so we do not have a separate consent process. In California, we're also unique in that our reporting for Child Protective Services 
there is no mandated reporting based on just toxicology screening alone. In other states that I've worked with where there is that, we will encourage, because many women will decline it or will not admit to use, having a broad questionnaire that at least gets people to answer something. Maybe they'll just answer that they smoke cigarettes, but you can start educating them and give them the appropriate information. The key part of our program is the integration of having a mental health provider inside the Department of OBGYN. She is part of the OBGYN, uh, the obstetric care team taking care of this patient. She, um, in this way, there is no barrier because if you send women somewhere else to get that care, they often will not go or show up due to the discrimination uh, that they feel in many chemical dependency or addiction programs throughout the nation. The other issue we have, like around the counties everywhere, is when we have only three providers somewhere, it's pretty darn hard to be sure you have a social worker there at all hours. So we use other technology like video visits so that a, a, a social worker in one area can take care of a patient that's located in another area. We also link all of our appointments with the routine prenatal care appointments so she doesn't have to make more than one trip back, and we do a lot of work with um, telephone as well. If you look at our outcomes, what you can see is a pattern that shows um, uh, right here. And all the way on the left, those are the group of women who received early start services. All the way on the right are our controls, those women with no drugs or alcohol or cigarette use. And the big bar that's standing up there are women who screened positive but didn't get in the program. And I'll, the, if you read the paper, you'll have the nuance. But what I can tell you is things like preterm delivery, NICU uh, admissions, uh, intrauterine fetal demises, all of them show the exact same pattern where the early start group and the control group have no statistical difference, and yet the group that screened positive and didn't get in had markedly higher negative results. So you see that with preterm delivery. And what happens is when you take all of those outcomes and you transfer that into a cost analysis, when we just analyzed babies born between 33 and 36 weeks, if you show the next slide, you'll see that the cost difference, so you have 1.6 times more babies born in that big, tall line there. The cost difference just for taking care of those babies alone more than uh, covers the cost of the program. Mm -hmm. um, and when we analyzed this for our nation, next slide, and we looked at all of our costs, we actually ascertained based on looking at SAMHSA data, drug use, outcomes, and expected that if the United States were to pay for this program across the nation, it would save us approximately $2 billion, um, a net cost savings of $2 billion in our healthcare system. Wow. Thank you. Wow, that was fantastic. Thank you uh, for those comments, Nancy. That was that was very eye-opening. Let's turn to, to Helen here as, as we get through the, the first section of our show. Uh, Helen, as we prepared for this WIHI, you, you spoke of a program that sees mothers first, addicts second. Uh, can you explain what this means in light of efforts you're involved with in Oregon to support pregnant women with addiction? Apologize. Um, sure. Thanks, Mike, for having me on again, too. It's really great to be here. Um, I think it's really easy for healthcare providers to look at pregnant women with substance use disorders and see it as, as kind of a one-dimensional thing. You know, they're using drugs, they're pregnant, they're not fit to parent, sort of end of story. Our job is to help this baby be safely delivered and then get child welfare involved. And that's been our experience here in Oregon. That's kind of a, a very common theme and a common story. But what we're trying to do in Project Nurture is to understand the complexity of this issue. Often these are women who come from lives of trauma and violence. They haven't had reliable relationships themselves in their own lives. Maybe they had difficult childhoods. Um, they have had unstable relationships. Um, maybe they've been through the trauma of having had previous children removed from their care. Uh, and usually they don't even have the basic resources like housing, food security, safety from violence that all of us need to create stability in our lives. So we try to shine a light on that and realize how much of a, of a piece that is to their story. Um, these women really have no reason to trust the healthcare system. We tell them they should come in for prenatal care. We tell them you know, all the things that they should do for a healthy pregnancy. But then the first thing that usually happens when they present to care is that somebody calls child welfare to question whether or not they can parent this child. And that, that's perceived by these women as a real threat and a real reason to stay away from us. And of course, we all know that when they stay away from care, um, the outcomes tend to worsen. So we try to create a space where these women have a really different experience of care, where they get the support they need for becoming safe and healthy parents if that's what they want to be for themselves. 
most of the women who come to Project Nurture do want to parent. And when we offer them a safe, non-judgmental space where they can get the care they need, they are more likely to avail themselves of the opportunity to work with addiction counselors, maternity clinicians, uh, and case managers, and professional peer support to create more stability in their lives. We think that pregnancy, we've seen that pregnancy can be a really powerful time for healing. And we also know that when women enter substance use treatment while they're pregnant, they're three times more likely to be sober a year out than if they enter treatment when they're not pregnant. The idea is that the system um, can create an environment um, where um, we convey the message to them that it's possible for them to, to parent in a safe and healthy way. And that can be really deeply motivating and give women confidence to do the hard work of recovery. So when we think about um, safety in parenting, we think about a plus-minus column um, scheme where the fact that they're using substances while they're pregnant is, is a pretty big item in their minus column for being a safe and healthy parent, but that there are a lot of things they can do to put things in their plus column. They can attend prenatal care. They can get enrolled in addiction treatment. They can participate with case management, find stable housing, get out of unhealthy relationships. So um, we try to support them in building up their plus column so that um, on balance um, they, they are working toward creating a, a safe and healthy environment. We're very transparent with our DHS child welfare system. Uh, if women do need to be involved in that system, we're really transparent about our, our feeling like we need to notify them. We try to um, make that as, um, as um, obvious or transparent to them as possible so that they feel like they're really participating in the decision to involve DHS and it's not happening behind their back. Mm -hmm. We have three sites in the Portland metro area. All of them are collaborations between multiple organizations, and they all involve maternity care, level one outpatient addiction treatment, case management, and peer support. We have an integrated model, but it's integrated in a slightly different way than what Nancy was speaking about with Kaiser. We integrate maternity um, care um, provision in, from the physical health care system and addiction care through our substance use treatment system. And those are typically agencies that don't often integrate with each other. So there are deep partnerships and contractual arrangements, and it's all they all occur in the same place. So we have one site that is um, midwifery clinic, and they bring in an addiction agency um, with staff on site to do the addiction treatment. Another site is in a methadone treatment clinic, and they bring in um, maternity care clinicians from a family medicine um, academic department. And then the third site is in a family practice clinic in the community, and they um, partner with a behavioral health organization uh, within their health system um, to bring it in. So it's a deeply integrated model um, where, where the addiction treatment happens on site because, as Nancy said, if you refer women out, they tend to, tend to not go. Um, our model has inspired the idea of universal screening. I think Nancy was absolutely right on on this, that you, you have to start doing universal screening across our populations, not only for substance use treatment, but also for mental health concerns, domestic violence, and basic resource needs. They're all the things around pregnant women with substance use disorders that really influence whether or not they, um, they are able to get the care that they need. Um, right now, our model is supported by um, Coordinated Care Organizations. Health Share that I work for is a coordinated care organization, so it's a form of a Medicaid ACO. Um, and so we supplement the cost, the non-reimbursable cost of this program through our budget. Um, but we are currently in discussions with our payers about developing an alternative payment methodology. And it's this idea that we should be risk stratifying maternity care, especially in the Medicaid system, and consider the psychosocial risk factors like severe and persistent mental illness or substance use disorders and think about how we can build a better team of clinicians to care for these women and then pay for it differently. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for those comments, Helen. It, it's such a. There are a lot of similarities, of course, with uh, with Nancy's comments, but but it's uh, it's it's unique in its own way and, and really interesting. Uh, Daisy, let's let's come across the country here and, and turn to you for our sort of final presentation, if you will. Uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock in New Hampshire engages with about half the pregnant women in the state, and that's quite impressive. Among other things, this suggests that how the medical center approaches pregnant women with addiction could have an enormous impact on the epidemic, which we know is quite serious in New Hampshire. Can you tell us more about the work you're involved with up there? Absolutely, and thank you for the opportunity to share uh, what we're doing here, which is very much a work in progress. We're a relatively new program, um, launched about three years ago as a result of a collaborative effort between obstetrics, psychiatry, and pediatrics. 
this developed from the urgent need for access to care for pregnant women with opioid use disorders. Um, to give you a little context, as you know, New Hampshire ranks very high nationally in prevalence and very low in treatment availability mm -hmm. for OUD. So before our program started, an increasing number of women were coming to us for help finding treatment, and we were in the unacceptable position of having very little to offer them. So it became clear that as an um, organization, we needed to build a structured response uh, to what was truly a health crisis in our region. So we started um, from this collaboration, three-way collaboration, an office-based perinatal buprenorphine program in a quiet location about 10 minutes from the main hospital. So we chose to be off campus because um, it's a safer environment to go to when you don't have to sort of walk through the door and up the stairs and into um, a big signed door that says addiction treatment. So you can see at the bottom of this slide, um, it's a nice quiet place. Mm -hmm. Our initial goal was quite narrow if ambitious, which was to solve the problem of access. So in the process, however, we've learned a great deal about why integration of maternity care and addiction treatment is so um, essential. And I have to say that our patients have really led us on this journey. So improving access to treatment starts in our general OB clinic, where we also use a universal expert framework. Um, there is new legislation that just recently passed in New Hampshire that makes it, I think, probably a deterrent for, would be a deterrent for us to do universal drug testing. So we've opted to do the um, screening, verbal screening only, um, which we actually use tablets for. Um, this allows us to apply primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention strategies by using this ESPERT framework that is um, shown on this slide. For women who are not using anything, screening gives us a chance to have a conversation, reinforce, share information. Uh, when women disclose high-risk use before pregnancy um, or are continuing to use, the clinicians can therefore provide brief intervention and make a follow-up plan based on level of need. And when a woman discloses an opiate or other substance use disorder, she's referred to our perinatal treatment program. Mm -hmm. We also have a behavioral health clinician who's integrated into our OB clinic who provides follow-up counseling when women screen positive, and she's also a bridge to our treatment program as she works there as well. On the treatment side, we are providing medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine for both pregnant and postpartum women up to well, technically, um, the first year of postpartum, but we don't discharge people after that, as I'll explain. We also provide um, maternity care, parenting support, and psychiatric evaluation and treatment, all co-located in the addiction treatment context. Women come weekly, and group visits are a big part of this program, and, and attendance is required at group. Once recovery is well-established, postpartum women may come less frequently than weekly if they're doing really well. So soon after uh, we launched the program, we began to see that although treatment with buprenorphine was certainly what inspired women to come in for care, we needed to provide much more for them once they got there. And it was our participants who asked whether they could start having maternity care on site, um, leading us to add a midwife to the team. And now they have roughly half of their prenatal visits with us. The majority of the women who seek care with us also have co-occurring psychiatric diagnoses, and it became clear that we needed to really build out that part of the program, so we added a reproductive psychiatrist to our on-site program. She provides comprehensive evaluation and treatment. And then our behavioral health clinician is available there for individual counseling as well. The patients have also guided us in expanding our postpartum care, recognizing the crucial role of relationships in women's recovery. We've added the Nurturing Parenting Program, which is an 18-week national curriculum which teaches parenting skills integrated with recovery. Mm -hmm. And women's partners who attend the program can also receive buprenorphine treatment through us when it's indicated for them. So that's been a huge thing to be able to provide care for the entire family. Our program enrolls women during pregnancy, and treatment is recommended at least through the first postpartum year. But that being said, we've never discharged anyone because their child was too old. So we now have toddlers running down the hallway, and I do believe our next um, program to build out is going to have to be child care services because after they get to be about a year old, it gets really disruptive. <laughs> Um, on the inpatient side, we strive for smooth handoffs and transitions, so we really interface there um, and do a lot of education prenatally to prepare women and families for childbirth, breastfeeding, the possibility of a long hospital stay, and to navigate the issue of mandated reporting. And because 
we care for patients in both New Hampshire and Vermont, there is a bewildering difference in rules related to mandated reporting and expectations and two different agencies. So it's very complicated because women often move from one side of the river to the other based on availability of housing or who they're staying with because many are actually homeless. Um, this can be um, a very complex issue for them. Um, finally, as you can see from the schematic um, on the previous slide, we also facilitate access to care with other specialties. Uh, for example, 20% of our patients are positive for hepatitis C and they don't receive follow-up generally, so we see ourselves very much in the care management role there. So developing trust is really essential and the relationships that we build by having the same people involved week after week in their care are really helping to make those connections. So in terms of impact, our perinatal outcomes um, have been good, um, even at this point when it's really too early and the numbers are too small to, com to make any comparisons. But our average gestational age at delivery for our cohort is over 38 weeks, and average birth weight is in the normal range. So um, we feel this is really an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of our participants remain in treatment postpartum, which is a very good um, uh, rate to have for a treatment program. We're also saving money. Our newborn length of stay and the proportion of babies needing treatment for neonatal abstinence are quite a bit lower in our treatment group than they were at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock baseline period, which was in 2012. So from the population health and cost perspective, these outcomes are certainly important, but even more so if we're successful in supporting long-term recovery and have a positive impact on parenting, we will really reduce adverse childhood events and prevent morbidity and mortality for everyone involved longitudinally and this is what will have a lasting impact on the long-term health of communities. So this is value-added. That's very difficult to measure, but we feel ultimately it's the most significant of all in the long term. So finally, I just want to mention what's coming next. Uh, we're committed to building on and improving the services we've tested over the past several years, but um, at the same time we recognize this is a regional problem and that we need to disseminate our model um, before we get it exactly perfect. So. Our goal is to provide, obviously, a standard um, evidence-based approach to the care of this group of patients um, and with a sensitivity to the variety of different contexts around the state that we work in. So in um, order to accomplish this, it's our treatment um, at these outlying sites will um, is planned to be located primarily in the maternity care services, so um, using both models um, that Nancy and Helen referred to. Um, there are many more maternity care services in New Hampshire, of course, and there are addiction treatment sites, so this is really um, an essential um, strategy. And in January, our second site launched um, in our affiliated OBGYN practice in Keene, which is tremendously exciting, um, and that will help us uh, scale up our model. Okay. So fortunately, there's a lot of energy and thought being directed in this area nationally, so we're really appreciative of the partnerships that we're developing here. Wonderful. Thank you for those comments, Daisy. And thank, thanks to our three panelists on the phone for, for putting that information in such a, a concise, helpful way. Before we move on to uh, what, I, what I'm certain will be a rich Q&A, I just want to turn to, to Jeff for a couple minutes. Um, if you could help, kind of help out, draw out some of the key themes we've heard um, and kind of knit all this together. So could you do that in a couple minutes, Jeff? Sure. Well, that was just a lot of great information. Um, as you can all see, these are some really cutting-edge, innovative programs. And as Daisy was just saying, I think that you know it goes back to why we're focusing on substance use treatment integration today. This is an amazing example of embracing the triple aim um, for perinatal care, and it really speaks to all the themes um, that IHI has really been working on over the past couple of years in our research on a population approach to improving perinatal outcomes, especially in um, uh, high-needs communities. Um, you know, as you can see, these are really different models in a lot of ways, and, and I hope that, you know, I'm sure the audience today is very diverse. Um, some of you are in community practice, some of you are in academic settings, um, some of you might be in large integrated systems like KP, um, and I hope that in each of these models you see something that you think you can bring home um, to address this, this real crisis. Um, obviously, opioids is, is a big theme, but it's not just about opioids, obviously. This is about a broad, more broadly um, integrating addiction treatment with perinatal care and, and, you know, whether it's opioids or something else, it depends on what kind of commu what community you're in and you all, I'm sure, know uh, what your own local challenges are. Um, and, and I think that you see, you know, I think based on these different settings, very different operational models, and I hope some of you are able to ask questions about some of those operational details, which I think 
all of our presenters where we're getting into um, some really interesting different practices with project nurture, doing co-location both of um, addiction treatment in perinatal care settings, but also uh, perinatal care in addiction treatment settings, and, uh, and Daisy also speaking to that point. Um, talking about really robust uh, risk screening and assessment with KP at a, at a massive regional level. I mean, they've really done impressive work, and, and the results really speak for themselves. I mean, massive cost savings. Imagine what the impact of this would be at the national level uh, with some, some policy change and, and scaling this kind of model across the country. Imagine the impact of that. Um, and, of course, you know, Daisy so eloquently and with such great detail uh, taught us all about um, this multidisciplinary hub that, that Dartmouth has really created, bringing together addiction treatment, psychiatry, perinatal care, um, really a holistic model um, that is spreading locally. I mean, uh, I think there's just massive interest uh, in, in her program model locally, um, and, uh, and we look forward to learning more about the results. Uh, you know, Daisy has already referred to some really impressive early results, and I'm sure down the line the results will speak for themselves about uh, this being a more than worthwhile investment, not only at the local level, but this is a life course thing. You know, you, you invest early on in this type of care model and, and the rewards, both in quality and cost, um, you know, you see those across the, the child's lifespan and, and the mother's lifespan. So really exciting. I wanted to thank all three of you for um, taking the time, and I, I hope that we have a, uh, a rich discussion. Thank you, Jeff. Great, uh, great summary of, of uh, what we just heard. It's fantastic. Uh, John, could you remind our listeners today how they can participate in the chat? We already see some good comments, questions coming in, but can you just remind the full uh, full group how to do that? Yeah, of course. If you are going to ask a question or uh, make a comment to our guests, uh, please make sure that you do so in the right-hand chat window in the send to bar to all participants. Great. Thank you, John. Uh, and a couple uh, just quick questions that have come up. Logistics here. The slides uh, will be available after the presentation, as will the recording tomorrow on IHI.org. We will send out a link to that. Uh, the first question that came in early on, I'm going to turn to Nancy for this, a um, question that came about uh, urine toxicology as a screen for illicit substance use. And they don't use it uh, up in McGill, it looks here, because uh, toxicologists have informed us that it leads to high false, uh, high false positive rate. Do you have any comments around that? That's very interesting. We, we actually have not had that experience here in Northern uh, California with our toxicology screen. There are uh, different um, assays that are used, and there may be something about your particular lab or where they're setting their uh, positive screen to be. So um, and a lot of that has to do with working with the lab. We work very closely both with our addiction and chemical dependency programs and our program um, to be sure that we're setting uh, the lab uh, result for positive at such that we don't really see a lot of false uh, false positives. We actually very rarely see them. The number one often is the alcohol wipe that people use, and we don't have people use that for collecting the urine for toxicology. That's great. Thank you for that. Uh, Daisy and, and Helen, just uh, just want to give you a moment. Anything to add to that? Um, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead, Helen, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, this, uh, this is Helen in Oregon. We don't we don't use urine toxicology routinely for screening. We have, um, we are lucky to be in a state where it's not a mandatory report for um, pregnant women who are using substances. Um, those are not considered mandatory reports. But we have struggled also with the issue of um, false negatives and false positives both. I mean, it's just a snapshot in time when you get that urine, and it yeah, people lean on it too much as the definitive answer. So. Um, so I agree with the idea that the universal screening should really be an interview-based screen and um, and then a judgment made by the clinician depending on those interview responses about whether urine toxicology is needed, and then you just use it judiciously. Um, we, we remind our clinicians that urine toxicology can be used. In, you know, it's one of the few tests that we do in, in clinical practice that can be used in a legal context, and so we have to be very careful about, you know, when we do it and what it might mean uh, for the future of this family. So um, we use the 4Ps Plus as an interview screening tool. Um, it's been validated in pregnancy, and we've uh, been finding it very useful. We also know that asking about alcohol and tobacco specifically in pregnancy uh, actually get you closer to um, true answers. We know that women have lots of reasons to deny that they're using substances in pregnancy. Um, as I mentioned before, they don't really have any reason to trust us with that information and what's going to happen. And so um, knowing about alcohol use and tobacco use in pregnancy can be really um, 
helpful in, in sorting out who's more at risk for, for use of other substances. That's great. Thank you. And, and Daisy, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to chip in, and then we're going to follow up with a, another question directed to you. Um, so, okay. so, so please contribute to, to that first question. I'm sure, and I don't have a lot to add to what Helen said, um, other than we um, use an expert screening model as well. We use tablet-based, and so the patients are actually anonymously talking to a tablet when they do this screening, which there's some evidence um, that this is actually even more effective than an interview based with a person. So um, the thing that really strikes me about our expert responses is the high rate of at-risk drinking that we can elicit discussion about um, that we would not pick up in our routine in a routine urine toxicology, which doesn't include metabolites of alcohol generally in the OB setting. And so um, we have like 30% positive on at-risk drinking in our prenatal population. Not that they're drinking during pregnancy. This is in the year prior to pregnancy. The problem being that postpartum, women revert to their usual um, habits very quickly, generally, in terms of alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco use. So it's really a golden opportunity that is only elicited through the verbal screening um, to talk to, parent, to potential or upcoming parents about how they're going to interact with their previous drinking habits when they have a baby to take care of. That's great. So you really can't substitute anything for that that discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Daisy. Mike, can I just add that? It's Nancy. I just want to add one more, one more comment. Of course. Um, you know, I fully agree uh, with the comments made by my peers. However, I want to add one thing about why we continue to do the universal um, urine toxicology as well. We find that women, um, women are incredibly motivated in pregnancy to make this change. I have yet to meet a patient who doesn't want a healthy baby. You know, addiction is a very complicated uh, disease process. Using is complicated, you know, all the multiple factors and the psychosocial factors. What we find, and actually the four-piece plus was validated by us. We worked with, uh, with Dr. Chasnoff on that study. But what we find um, with our screening questionnaire is that women tend to decrease their use uh, on the screening questionnaire. So they will completely deny using certain drugs at all. Um, but they'll still admit to smoking or maybe to a drink here or there. So the, the, the screen has a very low threshold to be positive for that exact reason. And I completely okay. agree with, with Helen and Daisy that, that that's where you're going to pick them up. We find in Northern California 2% of our uh, toxicology screens are positive even when the entire screening questionnaire is negative. So it's a small group, but that's a really ambivalent patient, somebody who clearly want some help because they agree to submit their urine knowing it'll be positive, but they say no to using anything at all or having any problems on the screening questionnaire, which is an extensive questionnaire and does incorporate a lot of the same questions as 4Piece Plus. Um, the second side is that very often what we find is the drugs that come back positive are different than what they admitted to use and it does change our treatment plan. So we really have feel very strongly that the drug screen is, is very uh, additive in that care, that it's very tricky to determine just by, even with the one-hour psychosocial assessment, who should or shouldn't have gotten screened, and that's why we do it universally. Great. Thank you, Nancy very much. Uh, Daisy, I'm going to return to you. you. You mentioned that you'd met, uh, that you had unmet need for OUD treatment. How, how did you scale up MAT and the other services to meet the demand in pregnancy? Um, I'm not 100% clear on that question, but um, we, um, our psychiatry uh, department um, basically stepped up to the challenge. And they said, we will, we will do this for you. Um, what we're doing now is talking to our maternity care providers and finding out um, who at each site is interested in potentially becoming a buprenorphine prescriber, working very closely, of course, with addiction psychiatry as an um, available consultation at all times. And so we um, have right now one um, site, remote site, that is doing this, and it's their OBGYN, um, Dr. Fisher, who is doing uh, the, the prescribing, um, and that's, it's a great program. Great. Thank you. There's been a couple of the questions that have come in about screening tools, so I want to address that. Um, uh, the one here about the um, alcohol screening tool and, and withdrawal assessment tool. Nancy, could you start us off with, with uh, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so our screening tool uh, that we use in Northern California has not been uh, necessarily validated. We did, as I said, we're part of the study that validated the four-piece plus. Mm-hmm. What we found with the four-piece plus is we actually, it, it almost screened a little too broadly, and we had a lot of people rule out at the psychosocial assessment. It does catch everybody, but you end up having to provide more services. In an ideal rural, world with you know, indefinite resources, everyone would get the opportunity to speak with a social worker or someone who can help them you know, go through all of these different issues. Um, we use um, ours as kind of a a little bit of a cage tweak at the top and then uh, a lot of information about use since pregnancy and in the months prior uh, to pregnancy. I think, you know, the key is putting out a screening tool that is easy for patients to fill out on their own. Uh, it is true you get more honest answers if they fill it out on their own versus someone asking them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you need to have that uh, you need to have some type of referral process and, and a way for someone to assess whether or not that uh, screening questionnaire is indeed truly positive or not. You know, a lot, of, a lot of very conscientious patients write down everything they've used, including, you know, Tylenol or this or that, and they're very worried about the effects on the baby. So we get both screens of that. Um, I have to say, as far as alcohol use, uh, we, um, we pick up some uh, alcohol use, but not as much as you would expect that we do, It's that we should. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. We end up finding the alcohol through the other things, like smoking marijuana, which is a huge problem here in Northern California, and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Great. Helen, Helen, what would you add? Um, well, I, um, I, I fully agree sort of with those comments. The, the, the issue of, of how you screen and what you screen for is, is really key. Um, I would second the idea that um, when women fill out the screening tool themselves, it's going to be more accurate. What we have found, too, is when clinicians are really committed to this idea, um, we screening multiple times in the pregnancy is also crucial. Like we, uh-huh. we recommend that everybody gets screened during their first perinatal encounter when they first come in for prenatal care. Uh, that's a really good time to do screening, but many, many women will answer no on that first screen, and then if you ask them six weeks down the line, they might be more likely to um, to say that they that they do um, indeed use some substances. Um, it's also really tricky, really tricky, especially in pregnancy, to sort out the differences between use of a substance and misuse of a substance. Um, and um, having admitted to, you know, using some substance, like what is a safe level of use or what is a, um, uh, you know, there are, there are substances that we are particularly concerned about because they directly uh, create toxicity for the fetus, tobacco and alcohol being the top two. And there are other substances where we're not sure of the direct teratogenic effects on the fetus, but they imply certain things about um, um, the ability of this of this woman to parent that are it's more concerning sort of on the parenting angle than on direct toxicity to the infant and so there are a lot of subtleties around screening and counseling uh, for use uh, that are really hard, hard to sort out. What we are trying to create with Project Nurture and I'm sure this is true in the other um, settings that have been described today is this idea of centers of excellence. So we we as a big metropolitan area with a huge opioid problem and an overall substance use problem, not just opioids. We, we really think that this idea of a, a center of excellence model is really crucial, where you get several clinicians developing uh, an incredible amount of expertise on this issue. Uh, and then not only do they serve as a referral resource for uh, women, when women come in for prenatal care in other settings, they can be referred into Project Nurture and get treatment there. Um, but also then they serve as a sort of a consultant group, um, that there's an access line so that um, clinicians elsewhere in the in the region, and I saw a question in there about how do you how do you help with access in very rural, remote regions. You know, there, there, to some extent, there's going to be a lot of calling in for that. Um, you know, there's a there's some people, some clinicians will just need to call in and say, I found this. What should I do? Um, how do I get this established? Um, we are also very much engaging clinicians in getting trained to uh, be buprenorphine prescribers. We think that's an incredibly promising strategy. But another strength of our program is our partnership with addiction agencies who do methadone treatment. And many women who are pregnant and, and um, using opioids really do need methadone instead of mm-hmm. um, buprenorphine. That, that's a better fit for them. And so we um, having a partnership with a methadone treatment agency really expands our access to that care. Uh, and women, no matter what side of Project Nurture they come into, can get access to medication assisted treatment with either methadone or buprenorphine, and that, that really helps as well. That's great. Thank you. And, and Helen, while I have you, Daisy, I'm going to turn to you for my next question. But Helen, while I mm-hmm. have you, um, uh, do you, do you do suicide risk assessments? That's a question that's come in a couple times as well. 
We don't specifically do suicide risk assessments, but we do um, try to do a full assessment of um, mental health, including depression and um, bipolar disorder, sort of history of um, serious persistent mental illness. Um, and we always advise people, and clinicians tend to know this, that if people answer positively to depression screening questions, that it's useful to um, also ask if, if they've considered harming themselves. So so I wouldn't say that that's a standard part of our program, but we, we do a, a broad approach to these women, as I mentioned before, and we think not only about the substance use in isolation, but um, how does it overlap with mental health, history of trauma, what's their trauma history, um, what's their family situation, are they in a domestic violence situation? So we try to do a com- complete assessment. We are piloting um, a very um, interesting tool called the Family Wellbeing Assessment for all pregnant women where um, it, it covers multiple domains, including it has the four-piece plus on there, but it also has mental health screening, domestic violence, basic resource needs, and really trying to get a full picture of what's going on for this family as a way to optimize her ability to uh, be a safe and healthy parent. But um, there's really no such thing as sort of a, a simple heroin addict. You know what I mean? Like, you know, people don't come in with just heroin use. Usually there's like three or four other big right. things right. that are going on that are destabilizing their lives. So we, we try and take that broad approach. Excellent. Thank you. Daisy, I want to turn to you for the question um, that that Helen alluded to as well. Really important question about improving access to American Indian reservations. How do you recommend or what what tips do you have for increasing access to very rural, remote areas? Um, So we are obviously sort of at the edge of a very remote rural area, Mm -hmm. so and that's part of our service area. So um, although the Native American community in um, Vermont and New Hampshire is not federally recognized, so, um, but but in the, uh, in terms of serving remote rural populations, um, we are fortunate in that we have a rides program, and some of our pro- of our program participants do come a two-hour ride um, to our weekly program. So, that's a huge commitment on their part. Uh, we. Because we have a rural area, a service area, our maternal fetal medicine really does take a regional approach anyway to providing care for pregnancy, and, and we have a phone consultation as well as a transfer service, and we're the, tertiary, we're the referral center for this wide radius of remote rural communities in New Hampshire, so um, and, and central and southern Vermont. So. Um, that that framework is sort of set up for us already, and what we've noticed over the past five or more years is that many, many more of those calls for help are coming from um, obstetrical providers who are caring for women with substance use disorders. The other thing is that there are a lot of uh, people in our service area um, and outside of that who are not part of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock network that feel very uh, maternity care providers who feel very beleaguered by this issue. And um, we received a grant um, that we're doing in partnership with the March of Dimes and the Northern New England Perinatal Quality Improvement Network to help develop some some standardized care approaches that will be shared with everybody. This is not something that's going to be just part uh, available to the Hitchcock system. So, uh, really, we try to really take a, a share generously and still shamelessly quality improvement approach to what we do. <laughs> That's great. Um, Nancy, I'm going to turn to you for my next question here. Uh, for those that complete the universal talk screens, do, do other hospitals in the surrounding areas also complete universal talk, talk screens? Um, I, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. Are you asking what our competitors and, and what other hospitals are doing in Northern California, or are you asking when our patients then go to our hospitals, do they have toxicology screens? Uh, so I think the, uh, the latter. Let's start with that. Yeah. So we actually have, in the hospital setting, we have uh, guidelines that have also been written by multidisciplinary groups, and uh, we have worked with our medical legal teams, and we've also talked with our CPS uh, departments throughout all of California that that we would report to um, about who should be toxed on labor and delivery. And we really do that uh, based on clinical guidelines that are medically uh, defined. So um, in in that setting, when a woman uh, enters the hospitals, they consent to treatment, which includes any lab testing. So if we have somebody who comes in with a placental abruption, part of the workup, for example, is to also run a urine toxicology screen. And we do that as part of the general guidelines. Same thing in our, in our NICUs. Because we're integrated, uh, our ambulatory setting and our inpatient setting, uh, most, if not all, of our patients 
uh, have received their prenatal care within Kaiser Permanente. Uh, we do have a few that transfer late or may have not received prenatal care at all and just show up in the hospital, but we have access to their uh, ambulatory chart through our electronic medical system so we can coordinate that testing. If you're going to ask me about what our other uh, groups doing in Northern California, I really can't speak to that. Uh, we really feel that this is our standard of care uh, and that this is the way it, it should be done. That's great. Thank you very much. That was a very helpful answer. And for our, for our last question, I'm going to turn to Helen. Helen, are, are services all clinic-based or are some delivered in the client's home or in other alternative neutral settings? Most of our services are um, clinic-delivered. However, all three of our sites have professional peer support staff, and we think that's a really crucial part of our model. And what I mean by that is um, two sites have hired um, certified peer recovery mentors that come from the recovery community and are certified to work with other, um, other adults who are struggling with addiction and recovery. Um, and then one of our sites has chosen to employ doulas who are um, a sort of I refer to them as mega doulas. They do what doulas do, which is the emotional support during pregnancy and labor and postpartum support. But they're also very attuned to this population, and they provide a lot of um, hands-on, peer-based support to these women as they go through the program. And so those um, peer-delivered services uh, often happen in the clinic setting, but our, our peer support staff do home visits as well, and they will meet women um, at NA or AA meetings, they will accompany them if they have a court date. They will um, sometimes going with them to the dentist. You know, if they, if whatever's going on for women where they feel like they need some support or um, or um, just a little extra time, that our, our professional peer support, they do go out into the community and meet them where that's going to be most effective. So we think that that's a real cornerstone of the work that we do. Women, of course, come for weekly group visits in our model as well, and they get a lot of peer support from the other women in the program. That's so important. We know that from Centering Pregnancy and certainly from the recovery community that the peer support of other people going through what you're going through is, is great and really helpful. Um, but then in addition, having a staff person whose job it is to solely connect on that peer level and, um, and support women in a really intentional way. There are phone calls and texting constantly with our participants and just kind of keeping a, a really tight connection with them. Great. Thank you very much. And we are, we are almost at the top of the hour, but I do want to give each of you just 30, 60 seconds to just kind of close out with some final thoughts about uh, about your presentations and about really next steps. So, so, so Nancy, let me start with you if you could close it out with a uh, with some with some brief brief thoughts. Absolutely. Many people feel that this is a hard patient population to work with, and, and I would contend it's not. Many people feel they're defeated. They don't see the differences. Um, and it can be hard from one case to one case, but I can tell you based on studies that looked at 50,000 women over years of time that you can make a difference, that even if you start with just universal screening, even if you start with an expert model, you have to start somewhere. And these women want help. They want healthy babies, and we can make an enormous difference across the nation for having healthy babies and healthy moms. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nancy, and for your comments throughout the throughout the hour. Uh, Helen, I'll turn to you next for your closing thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Nancy. It's been really inspiring to see what a difference it can make if you just hold space for this kind of work. If you just say that we recognize that um, this care is complicated, but we believe that these women um, deserve a different model of care that really meets their needs and treats them as a whole person and, and, and makes services accessible to them. Um, it's been really profound to watch the shifts and changes that, that can happen, not only for the women themselves and their lives, but how it changes the healthcare system. I think getting back to Jeff's comments early on about the goals of the triple aim, um, we, we know that this is better care, that we're actually getting better outcomes that are really meaningful to our healthcare system. So it's a win-win-win all around. I think, you know, for these kids that are going to be growing up in these families, for the women themselves, and certainly for the healthcare system, there's a real opportunity here to make a difference uh, um, if we create the space for it. Thank you. Well said. Uh, Daisy, what are your final thoughts? Um, so I absolutely appreciate the comments that were made uh, before, so thank you. Um, I think the last thought that I have is that uh, this group of patients um, has suffered a great deal. So um, all of our patients come from, or at least in our program, um, sort of a multi-generational cycle of trauma and substance use in families and 
um, abuse and neglect is sort of what they grew up with. So um, expecting them to be uh, very functional parents and uh, very capable right off is, is pretty unfair because they didn't get a huge model of that um, early on. And so um, I, it's really our responsibility to treat the whole person, um, as Nancy and, and Helen both said, um, and to think in terms of uh, the trauma awareness um, and the care that we provide and really um, supporting them um, for a healing process. So that, that's what the work means to us, and um, we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and we thank you for, for such a great discussion, and we thank today's audience uh, for listening in and participating as well. Next up on WIHI on June 30th, we'll discuss five practical strategies for managing successful improvement projects. Please join us for that. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off. Look for that option. And we'd very much appreciate you filling out a brief survey that will pop up. We want to know what worked for you today and how we can continue to make WIHI a better program. Check out the archive pages for WIHI where you'll find an audio download of this program, plus all the resources posted by tomorrow morning. You can also find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, please write a review on iTunes. And if you have any uh, questions, please reach out at info at IHI.org. There you can also feel free to suggest future show topics. The people who make WIHI possible are Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. Thanks to Joanne Endo for her help on Twitter today. Uh, I, I am Mike Britton. Have a wonderful day.